Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am thrilled you have joined with us today, uh, partially and mostly because my friend Jonathan Merritt is with us today, and we invited you to suggest topics to discuss or questions to ask, and many of you responded. If you're not familiar with Jonathan, he is an award-winning writer who writes about religion and culture and politics for The Atlantic, and he's a contributing editor for the week. He has written for The New York Times, USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Washington Post, and Christianity Today, and is the author of Jesus is Better Than You Imagined and How Learning to Speak God from Scratch and A Faith of Our Own, Following Jesus Beyond the Culture Awards. He is a voice that I respect and often look to because he offers insight and guidance in the midst of an incredibly and increasingly complex world. So Jonathan, my friend, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me on today, friend. Yeah. So first, what would you love for our listeners to know about you? Oh man, that is a big, big question. Um, I I don't know. I guess I would say... um, that I am a professional question asker. You know, a lot of times when you step into um, the faith space, so if you're talking to a pastor or a a professor or uh, a religion writer like me or an author, um, these people are really professional answer givers. And they, they sort of travel the world telling people what they believe and what they think other people should believe as well. I certainly have opinions. That's something that I'm, I'm, I'm paid to, to provide as, as an opinion columnist. But I think of myself as, as a question asker, somebody who is willing to kind of raise questions that make other folks uncomfortable. And then I hope, when I'm at my best, invite readers, or in this case, listeners, to step into that space and, and to wrestle with the questions as well. So I'm, I'm far less concerned that people who interact with my ideas walk away agreeing with me. But what I do hope is, is that the things that I say will be sand in their shoes. That will help them to <laughs> wrestle as they, as they think about that question after I've stopped talking. Yeah, I love that. We've said here for a lot of years at DCC that our hope is that the sermon is always the beginning of conversation. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And, and, you know, one of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, she, oh, she yeah. says she thinks of a, of a sermon as wondering aloud. And, um, mm. you know, for somebody who grew up in a, in a religious tradition that uh, treated the sermon as a kind of fill-in-the-blank exercise where you got uh, usually three really good uh, answers to hard questions. All began with the same letter. All alliterated, right? <laughs> and, and you had a kind of index card faith. Mm-hmm. where whenever there was a really tough question, you could basically fit the answer on an index card. So all you had to really do was memorize it and go out and convince other people that they should believe what you believe because you're right and they're wrong. I think it's really refreshing to think about the deep and mysterious questions of faith that have been plaguing a lot of us for thousands of years, to think of it as just wondering, wandering aloud. Yeah. So before we jump into the questions that people sent in, through Instagram, I'd be curious what moved you. So you grew up in a faith where it was answer-based. Mm-hmm. What shifted for you or what moved you from being someone who either pursued or ingested the answers to becoming a professional question, question asker as you describe yourself? Well, you know, when you grow up in a setting like that and, and so much of American evangelicalism, it, it's grown out of American fundamentalism historically. And so the, the orientation is not just that they have the right answers, but that 
alternate answers are dangerous. Hmm. So they're, they're not even um, presented uh, as possibilities for other ways of answering these difficult questions, unless, of course, they're caricatured, right? They're <coughs> you're sort of, there's a straw man that's presented. Well, you know, the liberal church down the street believes this, or the Catholics believe that, or the Mormons say this. And, uh, and then they're um, sort of subsequently deconstructed and torn down and sort of swept under the rug. Um, but then what happens is, is folks like me who grow up and then you begin not only to realize that there are other answers, but that a lot of these other answers are being put forth by people of mutual goodwill mm -hmm. who are also seriously wrestling with the text. And then you start to find out that some of these other answers resonate more deeply with you. Mm. And when that happens, you begin to see that the questions themselves uh, can be holy. You know, the, the rabbis would say, um, God is in the wrestling. And so, uh, you know, for me, that was the, the sort of first rupture. And then uh, for someone like me who really values the text, you go and you read the, the Gospels and you find that so much of the dialogue in the Gospels revolves around questions and that Jesus has asked a huge amount of questions and very rarely responds with declaratives. Jesus either responds with a story or in many, many cases, hundreds of times, in fact, in the Gospels, he responds with a question himself. And yeah. so Jesus seems to treat the questions as sacred and holy in and of themselves, not rushing to find some easy answer like we do. And so uh, when I hold the Gospels up next to this kind of Western, rational, post-enlightenment way of approaching uh, Christianity is a kind of exercise in filling in the blanks. I find that it does it no longer resonates with me deeply at all. Yeah, love that. You when you talked about the rabbis, uh, it reminded me of the, the famous line from Rilke: mm -hmm. "Learn to live the questions." Mm, uh, I love that. Oh yeah, it's in his book uh, "Letters to a Young Poet," which I think I've mentioned on the podcast. And if I haven't, for those of you listening, I read that book twice a year. And uh, it's some of the greatest wisdom hmm. that, uh, that I get, that I expose myself to. And so I'd, it's called Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. It's beautiful. But we're here because people gave us things to talk about. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, so if, if you're listening, um, on Instagram at some point, uh, I put up a, a post about Jonathan and I being together. Uh, he's here because he's also speaking at Denver Community Church. And he'll be in an online gathering on January 24. Um, but like I said, I really do, um, when Jonathan writes articles um, or he's quoted, I often turn to him because he, he brings great insights. And so I thought, well, let's have Jonathan while he's here in town in Denver um, respond to some of the things that y you are interested in hearing about. So many of you messaged me um, with questions and topics. Some of you posted just a few words. Some of you posted some deeper thoughts and questions and so we're trying to capture those. I'm, I'm not sure that we will get to all of them, uh, but we will do our best to do that. So if we don't mention yours, I apologize in advance. So with that said, first, uh, from Brian, the question was, what do you make of celebrity pastors? Hmm. Well, that's a good question, and, and it's a relevant question with a, a, a lot of what has happened in American Christianity across the landscape of American Christianity in the last few years, what we have realized is, is that um, many celebrity pastors have had rather public, 
rather substantial downfalls. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems to be endemic to that form of, of church that people who set up uh, celebrity pastors open themselves up to a particular set of, of liabilities. Um, I'd say a few things. I'd say first, it's a problem. Um, it's a problem for a, a number of reasons. Um, it, it creates a lot of issues. And it also says something about Christianity by creating um, what a, a recent article in the New York Times called a hierarchy of coolness um, that, <laughs> that sort of places certain people higher up, not just closer to God, but uh, fundamentally in some way better or hipper or cooler or smarter or more desirable than the people who, who walk in the door. And what I've found is, is that that tends to be a kind of um, verifiably false notion that I find people who, who read the text with everyday lenses often walk away with more profound insights than those who have been uh, inoculated in Bible colleges and seminaries and by reading tome after tome of, of books where there's a kind of um, theological incest that's gone on, right? Mm -hmm. Where everybody's reading the same people and everybody's synthesizing and regurgitating the same text and we've done this for hundreds and hundreds of years and it's something that can squelch out a theological imagination. And so just from a, a pure thought standpoint, I think it's bad. Um, I think it's also bad because, you know, and, and you're, you're working right now um, with the topic of hope in your own community. And what can happen when you create this so-called hierarchy of coolness, or you might say hierarchy of holiness, is that people begin to invest a percentage of their, of their um, hope uh, in a person. And when you do that, uh, when you have these kind of spectacular downfalls, you find that not only is somebody disappointed in this person, they're disappointed in their faith. They're disappointed in their God. They're disappointed in the institution. They're insti they're, 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 they begin to lose faith, not just only that God exists, but that, that the ways in which we explore God actually work. And so I think it can be incredibly deleterious. I think in addition, I would say it's not only a problem, but it's not just a problem that affects big churches. There was a recent article um, in Christianity Today that was titled, The Celebrity Pastor Problem is Every Church's Struggle. Mm. And um, those of us who, who grew up uh, in smaller churches, in country churches, where um, there was um, uh, an ethos of honor around the senior pastor. They, they also saw um, this kind of celebrity pastor problem on a microcosmic scale. Um, you know, somebody was telling me the other day about their, their father who, um, when, when he was seated at the table, he, he was served first. And, uh, that might have been me. It was, um, <laughs> I can't remember exactly who it was. Uh, it might have been your wife. Um, I'm not sure, but, but there was this idea growing up that, that, that there was in, in, in a patriarchal sort of house culture that honor was given to the patriarch. And that kind of crossed over, that the same rules that govern households 
um, and, and sort of uh, husbands being at the top of the pyramid, uh, was carried over into the ecclesiology of the church with the pastor sitting at the top of the pyramid. These are kind of cultural constructs mm. um, that I think have affected more evangelical churches than they have mainline churches uh, that have different ecclesiologies. They affect evangelical churches more than they affect uh, um, Catholic churches to some regard, to, to some extent, and Catholic priests, although there is a hierarchy and there's Rome, where I think you could say that, that they have their own kind of celebrity problem, celebrity uh, leader problem. And I think it's a human problem. Mm. You know, there is a, a, a desire when you step into these conversations of faith to find a human ideal, to yeah. say there has to be somebody who's doing it right, because that's what spurs me forward to try to do it right on my own. Scott McKnight, in his book, A Church Called Tove, says um, that we, unfortunately, many people want their pastor to be a spiritual hero or a celebrity at, at some level. And they not only want it, he says, they expect it. Yeah. And they find themselves believing in it, even if the pastor's not perpetuating it. Yeah. And so sometimes it's that, that, that human impulse that catapults pastors to this level, whether they want to be at that level or not, catapults them, builds these kind of scaffoldings around them, whether they want it or not. And so I think we're in a moment now in the American church where we're reckoning with uh, the negative side effects uh, of these kinds of ideas that have been um, allowed to exist for a long, long time yeah. in American culture. Yeah, and we, we talked about this a little bit the other night, and um, I shared about three somewhat high-profile uh, pastors who in the last 24 months have taken their life, one of whom is a, a friend, was a friend of both you and I. Um, and I said, I, I, I have to believe that if, if there were three, w whether it's CEOs or business leaders in a particular sector, um, in America, whether it's tech or even education, whatever it is, that if three high-profile people took their life in a 24-month span, there would kind of be a, what is happening there, and we need to investigate that and dive deep. Do you see that happening in the evangelical church right now, that not just people who've had um, rather public in, in massive moral fallouts, but also now people who are taking their lives, pastors reporting depression, the statistics around pastors are depressing in and of themselves. But do you see, when you talk about this reckoning, evangelical megachurches or even churches, as you observed, um, uh, Protestant churches, non-mainline, do you see them beginning to address this in a real way that's going to lead toward change? Or do you think it's only at the point right now where we're becoming aware and awake? Uh, no, I don't see us. I don't see us addressing this in, in any way that would be um, sufficient. Um, I think that the data is clear. Uh, becoming a vocational minister is a health hazard. Uh, you're not likely to stay in that job for your entire career. Uh, when you drop out, you may perhaps leave the faith. Uh, those who uh, do stay in that job report oftentimes high levels of depression, discouragement, um, disillusionment. They're, they're not happy with their job. They have terrible um, work-life balances, and it's easy uh, if, you, if you come from a more conservative religious tradition 
um, in the similar way that people who come from conservative political traditions, that the lens through which you see and interpret the world around you is highly individualistic. Mm. And on the, on the other side, it's highly systemic, right? So if you're liberal politically or theologically, um, you will often see systems, and you focus really intently on systems. And if you come from more conservative pockets, you focus on individuals. And so there, there is a kind of... Um, I would say, an insulation that happens in conservative circles because people will, will revert to the kind of bad apple um, frameworks where they say, oh, yeah, 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 that guy took his life. He was mentally ill. There's not a conversation about the system yeah. uh, in which this person was immersed and the roles in which the system uh, was, was sort of forming this person or shaping this person or affecting this person, and there's a reason for that. I think it's because if we, if we have serious conversations about these systems, that these systems will have to change. And uh, the, the people who would need to change these systems depend on those systems to continue to pay their paychecks and yeah. you know, um, to continue to support their, their lifestyles and would perhaps challenge cer certain people to consider um, new frameworks for for doing what they're doing, which, which change is always painful. So if you're a 65-year-old pastor, um, what is the impetus that just because somebody on the other coast happened to take his life, that you're going to have a serious conversation that might mean dismantling the framework on which you depend? You know, there's a great quote, and I think it's by Upton Sinclair, that says, um, it's impossible to get a man to understand something when his his misunderstand when his salary is dependent on his misunderstanding that wow. thing. And so the idea is that there are um, financial incentives uh, in addition to um, social incentives uh, that that almost require that the people who could bring about change will not bring about change. And so on the one hand, I am not hopeful that the church will change in the near future in any substantive way that will address this problem, that will make it less of a problem. But what I am finding is, uh, if we take not from a grass tops uh, a perspective, but a grass roots perspective, I do find that among um, ordinary, everyday Christians, there is a more honest and full-throated conversation, not only about the, the failings of the institutional church, Yep. but about the ways in which those failings interact with our mental health. And uh, the question will be whether or not there will be a number of, of uh, pastors and religious leaders with the ability to do so who will have the amount of humility required to listen to what is happening in the grassroots and to respond to that with substantive changes. Yeah. Man, that's the first topic. There we go. We, we are get, off to the races. I have like 35 things in my head. I'm like, I think we could keep going, but <laughs> we'll, we'll park that one there. That was, that was helpful. Um, okay, so this one comes from Sarah, and uh, she wrote, As the church, we are called to unity, not uniformity. But we also have a dark past of complicity with patriarchy, white nationalism, and consumerism to contend with. How do we hold these things in tension? How do we have civil discourse when we can't even agree, what is, uh, agree upon what is factually true? And Ty, he asked something similar. He said, what does healing and unity look like in our communities? Uh, or what does healing and unity in our communities look and sound like during these times? And so they both talk about this idea of unity and how do we come together when it seems like we, w there's so much that we fundamentally don't agree on. Mm. Uh, and is that even a part of moving toward unity? 
Well, I would say yeah. a, a, um, a few things. One, I think unity is a good thing. I think we can start there. I think also I would say um, that unity is not always possible. And there is a, uh, the, the lost art of discernment is required um, to determine when unity is and isn't possible. For example, if, if unity means that you will not be safe, if, you, uh, if, you, if, you, if your body, your black body or your brown body will not be safe, uh, if, you, if you have unity, then I think unity is impossible. Mm -hmm. um, I think unity also requires deep, deep work. And um, it, it, is, it is not just sort of a value or a virtue or an ideal that is easy to, to make. And most people want unity without the work required to, to promote unity. Mm -hmm. And so people will say, yeah, 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 we need unity. I'd say another thing that's interesting is, is to note, typically the people who um, call for unity are the people in power. They're the privileged people. What they're really asking for is for the people who are being oppressed or marginalized by them and their buddies to sit down and shut up. Hmm. And uh, I reject that notion of unity. There's a, there's a, um, a quote that's been, uh, or a, a verse rather, that's been quoted a lot in particular by people in the BLM movement, by people who advocate for um, immigrants, that uh, it's a Jeremiah 6, verse 14. They dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. And so the idea that somebody brings to you, well, you know, we've got racial tension, and they're asking for a Band-Aid so that we can get back to quote-unquote unity, uh, I reject that. That is impossible. I cannot give you a Band-Aid for this mortal wound. Either you will be willing to step up and to make amends and to make changes so that the voices of the marginalized are heard, so that the concerns of the oppressed are heard, so that people who have been endangered by um, those who, who are in power and those who enjoy privilege, so, th so that they will be safe, or uh, there is no peace. And, uh, you know, you don't come to me and say you want unity unless you're willing to do all that unity requires. And so, um, to, to me, uh, I often say um, I am willing to work toward unity, but only if the people on the other side are willing to work toward unity. And, and unity will cost you something. Yes. You know, you, you quoted Jeremiah. Ezekiel has the same the same conversation with the, with it's really religious leaders of his day mm -hmm. and he I, I i can't remember what chapter it is i feel like it's ezekiel 13 but he says you say peace where there is no peace and what's fascinating about that is you have these religious leaders who in the midst of exile in the midst of destruction in the midst of sieges they're standing up and telling everybody everything's okay mm -hmm. but beneath that is the in the jewish tradition they connected exile to national sin and the national sin that the prophets were always talking about was the sin of injustice, mm -hmm. the oppression of the poor, the defrauding of the immigrants and the widow, mm -hmm. the ignoring and overlooking the orphan. It's the sin of Sodom, as, uh, as it's the prophets say, which is being overstuffed and unconcerned for the poor. Mm -hmm. So when they show up and say, everything's fine, don't worry about exile, we're good here, what they're actually doing, to your point, is denying the very injustices that are leading them down a road of mm -hmm. destruction. Yep. So it's, it's hope. And I, we, we're going to talk about this actually in a few weeks here at DCC, but it's hope outside of reality, mm -hmm. which is denial. Yep. 
And what, what I hear you saying is, when there's denial, you can't have unity. Yeah, I think, look, there is a difference, and these things are often confused, in particular by those who, who are in the position of power. There is a difference between calling out division and causing division. And so, you know, when, when people who have been under 400 years of, of, of racist oppression uh, by state-sanctioned slavery and domestic terrorism uh, carried out against people with black and brown bodies, when they are marching in the street saying enough is enough, they're not causing division, they're calling it out. Mm -hmm. That division has always existed. And what people often call unity is, is, is really just um, genuflecting to the status quo. That's yeah. not unity. Um, that's a false peace. That's a pseudo-unity mm -hmm. that, uh, that soothes those in power and says, there's nothing to see here. So, so calling out the division that is keeping us from having unity is a holy act. Uh, pretending that we can have unity when what you're really asking for is a return to the status quo, that's not unity at all. Yes. Yes. And so, considering serious question, what you're saying, because she talks about this dark past of complicity with patriarchy, white nationalism, and consumerism, what you're saying is these are the things that have to be unearthed, they have to be named. Uh, in the Christian tradition, we have to confess it to name what's true. We have to, there's a repentance. There's a, uh, there are the consequences that come with it. There's the realities. And until those things are dealt with, unity is, it's a pipe dream. You know, uh, it, it bears repeating again, but our gospel is a reminder that resurrection requires crucifixion. Mm. Um, unity is a resurrection idea. Unity is an ideal. It is the new life we hope for. But it will require that um, some of our most precious assumptions, practices, uh, the ways in which we think of others, the ways in which we, we read the text, will have to be nailed to a cross in order for us to have unity. And there are a lot of people out there who want to teleport to the empty tomb without experiencing Good Friday. And that's mm -hmm. just impossible. Our gospel tells us that. And so people who, people who want to stand at the tomb and have uh, the unity uh, that they, they hope for with other Christians, but they're not willing to nail anything to the cross, to let go of anything, um, to release anything, to reconsider anything, those are the people who are saying peace, peace when there is no peace. Yeah. Yeah. The current religious leaders. The well, ones who it, say there I is think, no pandemic. I think that it would be, I think that we do have not just a historical trend, but I think we have a, a, an unbroken set of stories even in our own sacred text that says that the people who are often saying peace, peace when there is no peace, they are the religious aristocracy. Mm -hmm. They have been and they still are. And the people, the religious aristocracy are the people who get up every single Sunday and they throw rocks at the Pharisees without realizing the irony. Yes. Isn't it funny? Maybe you do this, or I'm just projecting onto you. But the, how easy it is when you read the Gospels especially to always believe that you're standing alongside Jesus while he uh, rebukes, challenges, whatever it is that he's doing. Um, and you're like nodding along with him like you get it. And you're not with the disciples mm -hmm. who are missing the point. Or you're not with the Pharisees who are legalists. You're not, but you're always like, you're always with Jesus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think some of that, to your point, it's, 
that's what I grew up hearing mm-hmm. is like we're on Jesus' side. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's been refreshing, challenging is probably a more honest word, to read the Gospels where like, oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not on Jesus' side. I'm the Roman. I'm the, you know, in the text, I'm the Babylonian. I'm the one who's a part of this global military superpower. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually involved in oppressing people mm-hmm. like Jesus. Yeah. Um, it changes the, changes the way you read it a bit. You know, I had a, a spiritual mentor a few years ago, and after he had heard me drumming on and on and on about the Bible this, the Bible that, um, and, and uh, you know, I was frustrated with some folks in my life, he said rather bluntly, if you're Jesus in every story you read and your enemy is the Pharisee in every story you read, you're probably doing it wrong. And if you take, if you flip that script and begin to look for the Pharisee in me, mm-hmm. um, suddenly the text, it, rather than weaponize it, it becomes a powerful tool for your own spiritual growth, emotional growth, psychological growth by what Paul said is the, is the being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so I would often ask people to think even about the way that they read the Bible. Do you, or maybe we won't even say the way you read the Bible, the way you use the Bible. Hmm. Do you use the Bible more as a mirror or a window? And I think there are a lot of people who think that the Bible is a window through which you view the world and determine who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong, who's good, who's bad. Uh, and they, they, they have, have, have no experience hmm. using the Bible as a mirror uh, that exposes our own imperfections and calls us to the deep spiritual formation that should be our lives' work. Um, most people, I think, are far more comfortable using the Bible only and exclusively as a window through which to judge, quote-unquote, the world. Yeah. Man, that's helpful. All right, next question. Okay. This one's out of the realm of politics and religion and gets personal. Okay. <laughs> but I didn't it. write it. So this is from Alex. Uh, it says, I'd like to hear about your relationships with your dads. I hear Jonathan reference differences he and his dad uh, have always, have and always with such respect and love. How do they cultivate that kind of mutual honor and respect? And what did they need to work through to get there? Boy, that's I don't a big one. think your dad listens to my podcast. I, I, don't, I don't know, know that, that my dad yeah. listens to, right, right. <laughs> to the podcast. Uh, but I can't say I think I can be pretty honest on, hmm. on my side of things while honoring him. What, I'd love to hear your answer. Oh, my goodness. So uh, I wrote about this somewhere. So we, my dad and I, man, we just grew up like, gridlocked i mean just oppositional back and forth uh and many of you who are listening you know i grew up in a really hyper fundamentalist household um and i just i i never i think there was two things at work i never really fully believed all the stuff i was being fed and i just never i couldn't i couldn't behave well enough to keep all the rules which was pretty central to the world in which i grew up so i was always the kid in my parents church that everyone was praying for which either I don't know if their prayers are answered or if they're still praying at this point. Um, but it eventually came to a place where I was sitting with a therapist. You and I drove by those offices yesterday. And I was just unloading on him all the things that my dad had done to me and how terrible this was 
And I finally, I remember there was one moment I said, when do I get to tell him about all the stuff he did to me? And he said, when you're ready to do that in a way that's truly loving, when you're ready to do that where you are truly whole, you actually will find you don't need to do that. Um, so that was my journey. And he encouraged me to begin praying shalom for my dad. And so for the first, the first season of that, I, I mean, I would say things out loud in my car, things like, hey, God, I have to, I'm going to pray this, but I don't really mean it. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, Michael said that I should pray shalom. Michael being the name of my, my therapist. Shalom over my dad. And I, but I remember the day I finally meant it. Um, and I, it hit me like, I mean, it just hit me right in the chest. So unbeknownst to me, my dad had also, uh, we, we had, we, by the way, in the season, we, had, we were not talking. There was no communication between us for years. It was not long after I moved here to Denver. But he was going um, to therapy on his own as well, which I didn't know. And he was addressing a lot of the trauma that he experienced both right before he left Cuba when the revolution was unfolding and when he was sent over here at the age of 15 on his own with five bucks in his pocket, nothing else. Didn't see his parents again until he was 21. So in that, when we came back together, we had a, a brunch. We were, I was back in Grand Rapids for something and had brunch with him and my mom. And there was this sense of, I think both of us had the sense of we could, we could keep battling and to this day, I know there's things that we disagree about. Um, we could keep battling, or we could acknowledge the wounds that really we gave each other, because if I'm honest, like, I know I wounded my dad. Um, we can acknowledge those wounds, and we can begin to build something that down the road we'll be able to look at and say, now that's beautiful. And um, I, I think it's, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name, Francis Weller. He talks about how wholeness is not um, losing all the parts that are painful, but it's actually learning how to integrate those into your life now. And so when I think about my, my dad and me, I think we've integrated those pieces and we recognize uh, the beauty that's come from those ashes. But we've also recognized as we came together, we learned how to own our part um, and we've learned how to move forward together. Hmm. And we, there are boundaries that we've, we've agreed to but those, I think the more that we grow in respect for one another, which for me looks like listening to him, um, for me it, it means recognizing there are still idiosyncrasies that he has that are just a part of who he is. And so I've been able in my own healing to not look at those idiosyncrasies and be like, that's terrible and you're doing that because of X, Y, or Z. They're just idiosyncrasies like everyone has. Um, but as I've learned to accept those and even sometimes enjoy those things, um, I think as I've learned to see the ways in which he's growing, like he's an example to me now of someone who's, hey, I just read this, or hey, I'm learning this, or hey, I just found out about this. Um, and we've really, I think, in that, he's been able to see that in me, that I'm still growing, I'm still learning, I'm still forming and developing and becoming, um, that it's really kind of morphed more and more into this, like we're like fellow sojourners. Mm-hmm. Like he's still my dad, there's still... It still means a lot when I get a, a lovely text from him. It means the world. But I think that healing that we both gave ourselves over to is, is really what changed it. And I, I say that thinking about the number of people I've spoken with here who have a parent that have not pursued that kind of healing that my dad pursued. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think time and distance sometimes is necessary. But I do believe that with our own inner work, we can create that, those, that time and that distance and those boundaries 
without doing it as a way of punishing our parent, but doing it as a way of remaining healthy in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can still pray shalom or peace or wholeness or goodness to be upon them. Um, not as a way of affirming the life or the choices that they're making, but as a way of almost, we're now, we've become so whole and so healed. We can talk about them, pray for them, look at them without all of the other things manifesting in us. Mm-hmm. So it's been, by the way, that, that was like, I don't know, three minutes. I'm talking, this is years of work that we've mm-hmm. done together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, well, I know it really hit the fan right before I moved to Denver. So it really, it brewed and distilled for years and then 14 years ago blew up. Uh, but yeah, what you about know, you? I'd say, I'd start with saying one thing that probably needs to be said in my perspective from the outset, which is having a relationship with your parent is not inherently good. Hmm. Um, it is not inherently noble. It is not inherently necessary to your own health. Um, I have a friend who's transgender, whose mother refuses to refer to her by her chosen name and mm. pronouns. Um, that, that makes relationship with her parent inherently unsafe. I have a friend who, in New York, whose father lives in the Deep South, and every time he walks into his father's house, at some point it becomes either an offensive comment about his sexual orientation or a joke. Um, that, for him, um, relationship is not inherently good or safe. Um, there, there are people who you have uh, parents who will not respect your boundaries, and they, they break them chronically. And so I, I would say that don't think that having a relationship with your parent is always virtuous. Sometimes it's just being codependent, and um, you, need to, you need to break that. I'd say secondly that what people see online with, uh, with respect to my relationship with my father um, is not a comprehensive portrait <laughs> of my relationship with my father. Yes. Uh, when we have heated arguments, it's not appropriate for me to share that on social media. Yeah. And yet the, the you know, positive things I say about my dad on social media on Father's Day are also true. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, you're a, you're a fool if you think that what you see online um, is an accurate and undistorted reflection of real life. Uh, and that's also true in my relationship with my dad. There are times where we argue it could shatter the windows. And there are times where we feel that for whatever reason, for a period of time, you know, we don't need to be speaking as much. And um, there is a kind of ebb and flow, but we are committed to continuing to work at it and to continuing to stay in relationship. And so for us, um, it works. How do we get that to work? I would say um, I don't do it well all the time, uh, but when I do do it well, there are a few kind of principles that are work that are at work. Uh, one, always give somebody the benefit of the doubt or believe that their motives are, are good. Um, recognize when it's worthless or fruitless to have a conversation. Yes. There, there are times when you're not going to change my mind and I'm not going to change your mind. And the only fruit that can come from having that conversation is anger and hurt and disappointment and distance. Um, learn to fight fair. You know, if you grew up in a house together, you have an arsenal 
uh, of weaponry that at any time can be mobilized against that person, and you know exactly where to put the knife. Yep. You know exactly where to, where to fire that bullet. And so learn to, learn to fight fair. And then I would say to, to seek first, to, to understand, and then only secondly to be understood. Mm. That's important. Uh, and then I would say, finally, if you wanna if you wanna try to to improve your relationship with your parent, if it's not going so well right now, try this little experiment. In the next conversation or set of conversations that you have with your parents, um, force yourself um, to to make sure that the majority of your sentences end in a question mark. Uh, you know, I think a lot of people enter into these conversations with these these. Um, sharp edge declaratives, and each side is just sort of slicing each other uh, with their opinions, each person calculating how to respond to the other person uh, with their own opinion or point of view or their counterpoint, rather than really inviting um, the, the thoughts and the opinions of the person who's sitting across from them. So if we can learn to ask more questions than we offer opinions, I've I found that that's been, been really helpful. So I can't tell you how to do it well because I don't do it well. Mm. But I think I can tell you how to do it better because I've done it wrong so often. Yeah. Yeah, you know, on that, when you talk about asking questions, a piece of advice that was given to me years ago was have a plan. Uh, so if you're in a if you're in a really delicate place um, with 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 a, with a parent or even with anybody, but especially with a parent, and you're going to go home for the holidays or you're going to um, have a phone call or Zoom call, whatever it is, have a plan going in of what you will and will not discuss. And to your point, you could even part of that plan is create questions. And I think the other thing that came to me as I was listening to you is. I remember being told, and I truly don't remember who said it to me. They said, it is not your job to change your dad, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. was really freeing because I thought I went into this, a lot of the, the inner work that I did with, if, if I can change him, things will be better. Mm -hmm. Not recognizing the things in my own, my own life, my own heart, my own world that I needed to change. And so when you talk about people, like you don't have to have a good relationship with your parent, especially if they're abusive or toxic. Um, but you can be someone who, even with an unhealthy parent, can live a healthy life and even live in a healthy way toward that parent mm -hmm. if we're willing to do our inner work and forego the attempt to change them, which I attempted to change my dad for a lot of years, and mm -hmm. it just led to more heartache. I, yeah, the same thing was true with me. I think as I've, as I've aged a little bit more, I'm, you know, I'm not some wise old sage, but as I've aged a little bit more and have experienced more of the ebbs and flows of our relationship, I think um, the focus of my energy and attention and words, and hopefully this will increase, um, the goal of it, the focus of it, has moved from agreement to acceptance. Mm -hmm. And so the base um, assumption I start with now is the way that he is is the way he will be. Mm. And then the second question is, is what does it look like to construct a life together around the person that he is? Um, that will help me to unhook uh, my expectations uh, that he will agree with me, uh, he will align with me, that he will see the world 
um, as I see the world, and hopefully it, it helps him to do the same. And so then our energy is not focused on changing each other, but understanding each other. When our energy focuses on understanding each other, the byproduct of that is empathy. Mm. The byproduct of that is compassion. The byproduct of that is love. When you take two people who um, have been raised by different parents, two people who grew up in different eras, two people who read the Bible differently, two people who see the world differently, two people who have different politics, two people who have completely different life experiences, and you try to get them to agree, the fruit of that is going to be misunderstanding. The fruit of that is going to be anger. The fruit of that is going to be frustration. And um, it, it doesn't often end well. There, there are stories where uh, a father later in his life just totally changed his views and just became just like his millennial child. Um, but I will say that, that from, at least from where I stand, and, and I think most therapists would, would agree with this, that is the, by far the exception mm -hmm. and, and not the rule. So I no longer have any expectation that my dad is going to become me. And I hope that he has let go of the expectation that he can somehow, through sheer effort, make me become like him. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. All right. Emily wrote this. How do you live again after losing a loved one? Hmm. Let, me, let me say this before you even start. Emily, if you're listening, thanks for being vulnerable enough to post that hmm. and believing that either Jonathan or I have something to say that could somehow help move you through something as tragic as losing a loved one. Um, so I just wanted to, before we even get into it, I want to acknowledge that vulnerability and that trust uh, and thank you for that. Hmm. Boy, that is a big question. And I'll say, you know, I've never lost uh, a spouse, a child, a parent, or a sibling. Hmm. And I think that those, um, those are the kinds of losses that, that release the wisdom um, that, that would answer this question. So I, I come at it um, as, as, as somebody who, um, who hasn't walked through the kind of suffering necessary for that. But I will tell you, I, I, I am somebody who has experienced loss. And uh, I've, I've had, the, in, in periods of my life, the loss of my health. Um, you know, I've, I've struggled with chronic illness and pain, and that has a way of making life seem smaller. Uh, it has a way of exposing the false promises of your, your previous life. But I, I, I think that, at least in, in, in my my perspective, um, you have to become comfortable early on before even those big losses happen with a kind of rhythm of death in mm. your own life and mourning death in your own life, the death of your dreams, the death of the person that you thought your spouse or your father or your sibling would become. And I, I think that we don't have, at least in the faith tradition that I grew up in, we don't have the kind of liturgies that other faith traditions have, or at least we don't make use of them. Um, you know, I, I think of my, my Jewish friends who sit shiva mm -hmm. when somebody dies 
We don't have that. What is sitting shiva? Sitting shiva is when um, a Jewish person dies and their family and friends will sit for sometimes long periods of time, sometimes days. Uh, sometimes there's long stretches of silence. Sometimes there are long stretches of grief. Sometimes there are stretches of celebration or reminiscence. And there, is, there are um, um, passageways um, through which they've sort of honed their abilities um, to process grief and, and loss. Um, I think that when you, when you ask this question, how do you live again? Patience, yeah. time. This is at least what, what the sages tell us. Um, acceptance. Uh, the, these are the kinds of, of passageways that if, if you look about, if you look through the, the world's greatest religions, not just Christianity, you find this wisdom um, emerging again and again. So I, I wouldn't want to pretend that I'm, I'm um, some kind of, of experienced person in doing this, but uh, I've had these little glimpses uh, of how to do it. And I think the word, you know, I said it a minute ago that comes to me over and over again as I'm thinking about this is, is patience. Yeah. Is, is a, uh, you know, the, the, there's a word that in the English uh, that we often find in the Bible, in certain translations of the Bible, which is long-suffering. Mm. And I think in the wake of loss, I know when I lost my grandparents, um, it was a, an experience of long-suffering. And to not just to skip over suffering or fast-forward through suffering, or to rush into, um, you know, what, what uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, again, calls full solar spirituality, but to sit in the darkness mm -hmm. and to remember that there are, as she says, there are things that we can learn in the dark that we could never learn in the light. Yeah. I, I think those are, those are helpful. That's not an answer to a question that I'm not qualified to give. But I hope there's some wisdom in that, that somebody who's experienced deep loss, that it maybe it will stir something in them that could be helpful. Yeah. What about you? You know, I'm sitting here thinking, as I consider her question, grief and sorrow, it's not something that you can prescribe an answer, like a, a solution to. You can't, like, I'd love to say, oh, do these four things and this will happen. Um, now, certainly there's, there's health to be pursued in the midst of grief and in the midst of sorrow, but it can't be prescriptive advice. Um, and I say that because everyone responds to pain differently. So my pain, uh, I have an unhealthy pattern of I'll often internalize it and then it will manifest later at some point down the road as anger. Hmm. Um, I have uh, other friends who they'll experience pain and they'll internalize it and they'll spiral into depression. Um, some will choose the path of escapism. So to say, here's what you do, is not always healthy because everyone's going to respond to it differently. I also think as a culture, we are into progress. We're into, I mean, you just think about the way our news cycle works. Um, whatever is the latest story is what we're going to give our attention to. So this time last year, everything uh, was about the, the fires in Australia. And it's, it's funny, even at the end of 2020, I would bring that up with people, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that hmm. because it's, we, we've moved on. And so to your point about patience, 
we can be tempted because we're immersed in this, this cultural milieu to, to try to replicate it in the way that we do everything, which includes grieving, which includes sorrow. Hmm. Um, and so there is a sense of, uh, when it comes to this idea of grief, what does it look like to move down further into it, uh, to actually go against what we're being taught about um, things always being up and up and up and progress, 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 and allow yourself to descend into that into that darkness, into that pain, as you were saying, um, to find what we can learn there. And then I think, too, um, something I'm learning a lot about currently is the, the beauty of ritual, hmm. mm-hmm. which we've largely abandoned in our white Western world. Um, and it sounds a little bit woo-woo to some people, but ritual is, a, is, as I understand it and as I'm learning about it, is a physical manifestation of what you're feeling within. And so there's a lot out there, uh, in particular, a book titled The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller about what does it look like to engage in some sort of ritual that gives voice and gives a physical manifestation to your grief. And what does it look like to have people in your life who are close enough to you who will bear witness to the ritual without giving any kind of commentary? So they're not there going, you know, I really think you should have, or I'm not sure what you meant by, but literally are there to be in it and experience it fully with you. Mm-hmm. And we've lar- I point that out because we've largely um, become people who are, live in our head. Stephen Gallegos talks about the four windows of knowing, thinking, uh, feeling, meaning like our senses, taste, touch, feel, smell. Feeling, which is this thing you get in your gut, but then this imagination piece or image piece. Um, Carl Jung talks about the intuition piece. Um, and we, we reside mostly in the window of thinking, but the ritual brings us down to the imagination, the picture, the feeling, the, the, like you're acting something out that be, what you're feeling becomes visible. And it's been shown that rituals in grief, which some rituals are things like sitting Shiva that the Jewish, in the Jewish community actually has a way of me- bringing forward what you're feeling, giving image to it, a picture to it. And in that allows you to deal with something more visceral and more real as a way of encountering the grief that resides within you. And that itself can even be another path of healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you, I'm not someone who's experienced tremendous loss. I've lost, definitely lost loved ones. Um, but that's why I say it can't be prescriptive. Um, and I think if anything, especially Emily, if you are listening, however you feel, is okay. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with the emotions. And so when people say things like, well-meaning, how long is this going to take? Or are you still feeling this way? Or how long do you think you'll feel? You don't have to answer those questions. However you feel, that is how you feel. And I think about a text message I got on Friday uh, from a mother of one of my close friends who took his life two years ago. And we were texting about the holidays. Two years later, and reading the, her words, the sacred words of her grief, two years on. And that's where I'm like, you can't, <laughs> you can't just say, this is what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, 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 and the way that one person uh, experiences grief is different than another. Yeah. And the way that one person processes grief mm-hmm. is different than another. And grief, of course, as we, we know now from, from research, comes in waves. 
Yeah. And sometimes the first wave of grief, there, there are a specific set of tools to weather that, survive that, learn from that, um, experience that deeply, process it. And the second wave is different, and the third wave is different. And so I think it's helpful, and you mentioned something about this. Who are the people in your life that you mobilize when grief comes? Mm -hmm. You know, the time to ask that question is not when you get the phone call. Yes. It's before you get the phone call. And so I'd also say to people who are listening who, who are like me that haven't, haven't experienced death in their inner circle, you need to go ahead and assemble those people now because that day will come. Either that day will come or, or you will be that day for someone else, one or the other. Yeah. Uh, so you should go ahead and make, and make preparation uh, for that day. And that's something in my life uh, I've been working on in the last year and a half is, is putting my team together. Um, that, that when the bottom falls out, and it will, and it may not be death, it may not be, it could be the death of a career, it could be the death of a marriage, it could be the death of a pregnancy. Um, there, there are, death comes to us in a, in a myriad of ways, uh, but, but, but putting together that team, because grief it, at its best, in my opinion, is a communal experience. Mm. It, grief is, is, is such a heavy weight that, that there is no one who can carry it alone. Yeah. And uh, that's when grief becomes trauma. Yeah. And so I would say find the people who have not only the strength but the willingness to step in and help you carry it. Yeah. Man, that's a good word. Uh, so we're going to... We're going to hit the pause button. Maybe, well, we talked about you maybe coming back out. Maybe we'll pick up the rest of the questions and add more to it the next time. I, I would love that. <laughs> this has been, this has been um, deep and rich, yeah. and, and it's a testament to the kinds of questions that people submitted. And, and you know, I know that there's a, there's a whole list of, the, of questions that we didn't even get to, and yeah. all of these um, have been so thoughtful and, and important. So thanks to everybody who submitted to these questions because... Wow, there's a lot there, and we barely scratched the surface. I know. Well, and thanks for giving time to it. Oh, my, it's my yeah. pleasure. So um, for those listening, how can, how can people find you online? You have a number of books. You have a book forthcoming. Um, but where can they find you online? Well, you, the easiest way is just to go to my website, jonathanmerritt.com, and it has um, you know, all of the social media links. You can sign up there for my newsletter, The Faith and Culture 5, which can be really helpful today because people are like, I don't know what to read. There's so much content coming yep. at me. And so each week I just send people, hey, here are the five stories on religion and culture that you need to be aware of. Yes. And, and I, I subscribe to that. Like, oh, and I love it. I oh, really cool. do. I, cool. I would say I click on three out of five each, each time I get it. Oh, cool. Truly. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, today when I get done, I, I'm going to compile those five. I'm going to put my book recommendation in there. So I, I'm not the kind of person that's going to write, uh, you know, a diary entry every week for you to read. <laughs> I don't, that's not my gig, but uh, I do think it can be helpful to curate, to do the work for other people yeah. that other people don't have the time to do. They don't have the energy to do to kind of comb through all that's being um, discussed and written to say, hey, here are the things that you might need to know this week. And uh, everybody, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this, you can go to my website and you can find all of it there. Perfect. Well, dude, thanks for being here on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. We're going to go get lunch now. Let's do it. Yes, let's <laughs> do it. But before we do that, for all of you who've joined us, we thank you again for being with us on this episode. And uh, thank you for being those who continue to learn and grow together. 
may you never expect that we have all the answers, but may we remain committed to asking the questions. May we remain open and curious to learning new ways of thinking and surrendering old ways of thinking so that together we can move forward in greater wholeness. And that is it for today. On our next episode, we are going to talk about what it means to pray honestly. And I can't wait until that time. But until then, as always, much love and peace be with you.